Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about do-it-yourself investing. Justin, what would two investment advisors, people who professionally manage money, why would we do a podcast on do-it-yourself investing and not hiring an advisor? It's a great question. What's that famous quote that, I mean, our, our income, our financial livelihood is dependent on people not DIYing their investments. Um, so interesting topic for us to tackle today. Don't expect someone to understand something uh, when their income depends on not understanding it. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Um, but here's, here's the reason why we thought this was a good podcast. Uh, a lot of our... Cl- clients or prospective clients, we find a decent amount of people in the DIY camp. Maybe it's because oil and gas skews engineering, very analytical. Um, Maybe it's because, you know, of just Houston is kind of a a DIY uh, blue collar city. But for that reason, we've we've come across a lot of people that are do-it-yourself investors. And Justin and I were talking about it before the show. We'd liken do-it-yourself investing is is going to the casino. It's a suboptimal behavior and it's loaded with landmines and potential traps, but there's a wide range of people that go to the casino. And so if you're going to go to the casino, there should be some rules and there should be some ways to do it responsibly. So while we wholesale don't endorse do-it-yourself investing, if you are so inclined to do it, there's some rules, some strategies, some frameworks that should help you to, to DIY invest more responsibly. I love it. That's a great way of framing it. Well, we'll just get into we'll just get into the five. Uh, we really kind of have five talking points. So, first one, have rules, right? And so, this one, the first rule is to have rules, right? So, protect yourself from your behavior, right? So, behavior one hundred and one is you know when stocks get scary, that's the wor- historically the worst time to sell, and when stocks are screaming upwards, that's the worst time to buy, right? Because you're paying more for the same. For same dollar of earnings, right? So you're going to ruin your portfolio if you're making behavior-based decisions, right? The average active mutual fund manager underperforms their benchmark, right? So the average professional investor underperforms their benchmark. Why? Because of their behavior and their emotions they get in the way. So the best way to protect yourself from emotions is to have rules. So before you do any investing, you got to define, okay, what is the goal? What am I investing for? What is the time horizon of said goal? And okay, what are some rules I'm going to use to protect myself from my behavior? Because that could get in the way of me being a successful do-it-yourself investor. I think an example of this could be have an investment policy statement that is written out that tells you, here's my time frame for this investment. Here's the uh, uh, breakdown of assets. So here's how much is going to be in stocks, bonds, or real estate, whatever other asset class. And here is how often I'm going to rebalance it. And so even something that simple that just memorializes what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, um, and then you've got to stick to it. In any other rules you would add to that other than the kind of simple format I just gave? No. So we have a couple more rules we'll go, we'll go through, but those, those, that's a good starting point is really like, and 
Justin, what I love what you said about the investment policy statement, commit it to writing. You're more likely to compromise on your rules if they're not like if, if they just kind of exist nebulously in your head somewhere. So write them down. And this sounds like a dumb thing. And it sounds like, I mean, it almost sounds self-helpish to me when I hear this. It could not be more critical because you are going to face uh, market corrections. You're going to face a market correction once every 14, 16 months, almost every year. You're going to face a market crash every five, six years. When those happen, you are absolutely going to second guess your convictions. Um, I have been doing this professionally uh, for a long time. And I'll admit, I mean, I'll just be transparent here and admit the first five years or so in this industry, I was still really tempted to think, well, hey, what if we just get out of the market right now? Or what if we just do this specific rebalance to over tilt one specific industry? And it like it, it really took me years. And, and I knew it in my head. I knew that the academic answer was that is so stupid. Don't do that. Don't ever fall for that. I knew the academic answer. But when you see markets falling, when you see news on the television or Twitter, whatever you, you get your news from, you are going to be very tempted to deviate from your portfolio's policy statement. And you are going to be tempted almost once a year, and you're going to be very, very tempted when a market crash comes every five, six years. But all of your money is going to be made long-term by making good decisions during those periods. And I'll dive into why it's so critical during those periods. Okay, so quick story. I uh, remember the crash of of 2018. This is not a noteworthy crash because uh, intraday on December 24th, so so Christmas Eve, quarter four, 2018, the market in the middle of the trading day fell 20% down. Now it came up from that bottom, uh, so it is not officially registered as a as a market crash. It wasn't technically closing at a twenty percent down, uh, but this was a really volatile market. So I remember um, interacting with someone, and, and I I didn't even know them that well. This was at my previous job, so I, I wouldn't necessarily even call them a client of mine. But I had a conversation with them, and on Christmas Eve, they called, wanted to liquidate the entire portfolio. The whole quarter had been volatile. It had been going up and down way, way more, you know, just emphatically than than the average trading days. And so they had had enough. They were convinced that, hey, we've had nine years of of great returns. We've got market volatility. The market's in a bubble. We've got to get out now. Uh, And I remember begging them not to do this and say, "This this is absolutely not what you want to do. This is an investment mistake. Do not do it. Long story short, they sold. Now, the reason I mentioned that story is we will share a graphic um, if you want to check our show notes on our website. Um, and I, we've actually shared this before. It's the fidelity graphic of if you miss the five best days in the market since 1980, half of your return is gone. So if you just put $10,000 into the market uh, 40 years ago and let it ride, I mean, it's worth an unbelievable amount of money. But if you missed the five best days in the market over 40 years, just five days, um, if you miss the five best days, you erode almost half of your return. Um, so half of your incredible money that you've made is all gone. So I want to dive into that. And, and the reason why that is, is in a market crash, uh, Jared, you can give this specific number, 
But the average down day in a market crash is really bad. That's expected. It's like a down 1.3%. That's the average down day. That's horrible um, in the market. But do you have any idea what the average up day in a bear market is? No, but it's higher than normal. And we're going to get that data to our listeners and we'll keep put it in the show notes. I think it's like 1.2 or 1.4. And the average update during a non-bear market, so if we're not in a market crash, the average update is like 0.5 or 0.6. So in a market crash, obviously the down days are worse. We would all expect that. What most people don't realize is the updates are also far, far more emphatic. So the market goes up way more during updates in the middle of a market crash than, than uh, regular market times. I mentioned that because December 24th was the bottom. So that the market hit a 20% downward movement on Christmas Eve. The next trading day, on Christmas Day, the market's closed. Uh, obviously, that's a banking holiday. The next day that the market's open is December 26th. And I will never forget this day. The market was up 6.5% that day. 6.5%. That is one of the most unique uh, trading days of of our lives. That does not happen very often at all. And uh, I would compare it to this market uh, recovery. We're recording this in mid-August. So for the past month, the S&P 500 is up about 14% from its lows. Now, we don't know. The market could go back down. It could give up all of that recovery. But at some point, this market volatility, uh, the, the struggles that are currently happening, at some point, this will end. Markets will recover. And if you miss that initial recovery, so let's just say, what if this is the recovery and the market is going to continue on an upward trajectory? If you miss the last month, in a 14% growth, the ramifications of that over the next 10 years are, are enormous. The consequences of that over the next 20, 30 years are absolutely huge. So just dive into my example from 2018. If you missed December 26th and you had a million dollars in equities, well, if you missed that 6.5% update, you missed $65,000. But already today, what are we? We are three and a half years later. Well, 2019, 2020, 2021 were unbelievably good years in the market. So that 65,000 that you missed just on one day back in 2018, if you missed that one day, just the gains from that one day have already grown to, I'm, I'm going to guess it's, it's around 100,000 now. And we're only three and a half years later. If you then take it, what's going to happen for the next 20 years, missing that one day in the market, we're talking about a $600,000 mistake. And so you have to understand that's how compound interest works. So every market crash, it is going to be tempting to break your rules and not stay invested. Get out. Wait for it to become normal. And yes, if it goes up and then comes back down, you won't get hurt. But at some point, the market is going to recover. And if you miss that recovery, the ramifications of missing that recovery are absolutely enormous. I mean, we're talking about six figures um, and it doesn't take that many years to get there. Um, and so you have to have rules. You have to stick to them. That's exactly right. Yeah. The stakes are high and the struggle is real and you'll want to fight it. So having rules will protect you from that. Okay. Step number two to do it yourself investing. Simple. It's it's really an idea, but simplicity trumps complexity, right? So you're going to be managing this yourself. So having a simpler portfolio makes your life simpler, 
right? And like a great example of this is uh, investment rebalancing, right? So you'll say, you'll, you'll draw a line in the sand, hey, here's my rules, but things will drift. Life, life will happen. Even if you say, hey, I've decided I want to be 60, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. If you had that allocation at the beginning of 2010 and you looked today at your allocation and hadn't touched it, you'd probably be closer to a 90-10 because of how much better equities have done than bonds. So you can't just set an allocation and forget it. You have to rebalance it, right? But that's not an easy thing to do. And there's different ways you could do it. You could do it, you know, you could look at it maybe once a year. You could do it as a band base. So anytime it gets over a certain percentage or threshold, right? It's really up to you. But because you're going to be doing the work, keep it simple. Try to find the easiest way to do it, right? You'll likely won't have the software that we have to rebalance portfolios. So don't make really complex rules and build a really crazy framework to where it's really difficult for you to get your investment allocation or, or see, you know, to do any work on your portfolio. Have have a simple framework for doing it, one that's implementable and actionable. Yeah, there's uh, plenty of people online who have built their entire portfolio with with three funds. Um, and so even, even that, take the simplicity to the amount of funds you have when you rebalance your overall allocation. Uh, remember, the market's pretty darn efficient. And so in this game, simplicity is better than complexity. Yeah. And we, you know, we'll see clients all the time come in with what I call mutual fund soup, where it's like 30 different tickers. But really, like if you look under the hood of all these funds, they, they're 90% similar. Right. So it gives you this illusion of diversification, but it's just really the same thing, right? Just under different wrappers. And you can own tens of thousands of equities with with one mutual fund or with one ETF, right? So really like know what you own and try to keep it simple. Uh, don't don't introduce complexity just because it sounds good or you hear a sound bite. Uh, keep it simple. Woody Hayes, famous Ohio State football coach. I mean, this is like 50 years ago. He ran six plays. And he'd be asked about it. You know, he would be asked, well, how do you, how do you get by on just six plays? People are going to know what you run. They're going to know what's coming. And his response is, I don't care if they know what's coming. If all 11 of our guys know exactly what to do at the highest level for all six of those plays, we're going to be very successful. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Okay. Number three, know your costs and really this is two-dimensional, right? So the more tangible one is expense ratios. They are the silent killer. There's a lot of evidence that uh, shows the best performing mutual funds for a certain asset class is very correlated to how low its expense ratio is. And we have some slides from DFA we'll share. But a lot of times you, people can be paying tens of thousands of dollars in expense ratios and not even know or have loads on the mutual funds that are charging 5% up front, which is really detrimental because takes takes that out of the picture for compounding, right? So really know your expenses there. I'll never forget, this is, gosh, this is probably five, six years ago. I reviewed a portfolio that was maybe an $800,000 portfolio and it had two mutual funds and the total expense ratio cost was $25,000 a year. And uh, the owner of this portfolio had no idea that $25,000 every year was being taken from his account and given to these mutual fund companies. Uh, but you must know your costs. But Justin, that's really one of the costs, right? There's also this, and this is the more less less noticeable one, but time. But I would say more important, right? R- return on time. Decide how much, mu- how much time you want to spend to portfolio management, right? Even if 
the research says you won't be able to outperform the market, but even in the hypothetical scenario, you would, how many hours is that going to take you to conduct the research necessary to do that? What's your hourly rate times those number of hours? Like, is that something you want to do, right? Like understand the time intensity of that activity and whether or not it's worth it for you. Return on hassle. Absolutely. Return on time, return on hassle. You've got to think about those ideas. Last point with know your costs, uh, very simple to keeping it simple. Um, You can spend an enormous amount of money chasing really uh, sexy investments. You can spend a whole lot of money going into special real estate funds, private equity, uh, hedge funds. Hedge funds are extremely expensive. They're famous for being expensive. And by the way, there, there can be a time and a place. Um, and we're, I mean, Jared, we've done podcasts on this. We're, we're pro alternatives. Uh, we think exposure to real estate, exposure to private equity, um, all of these things, we, we think it, there's a time and a place for it. So we're not against them. But if you're trying to be a DIY investor, I would be very careful about those things. And keeping costs low, keeping things simple is a time-tested recipe for success. Yeah. That's a great point, right? Like like value. We talk about this idea a lot. It's like be conscious of value, right? 50 basis points is really expensive for an S&P 500 fund. Uh, 100 basis points is really cheap for a liquid alternative strategy. You're not comparing apples to apples. So that's that's another component too. Know your cost and then know, know the value relative for that cost. Um, okay, number four, a trusted person, buddy system, right? So even if you say, hey, I've decided I'm going to embark on this myself, have a trusted person you could go to. Doesn't need to be a professional that you're paid for, but you know, of course we recommend that, but have a trusted, someone you could go to, a trusted person to, to as a sounding board, right? Because we all have blind spots. We, we may feel overly pessimistic about one asset class relative to another because of personal experience. We may have this debt adversity that may not be healthy. We may have just have a financial blind spot. So when you're going to make big financial decisions, whether it be your portfolio and anything else, have someone you could talk to about it just to get a second opinion because money's a really personal thing, uh, very emotionally involved, and, and we all have blind spots. Yeah, I am. Uh, so personally speaking, I am not a budgeter. I'm not interested in that at all. Uh, nat- my natural inclination is to spend. And it is really helpful just to, before we record this podcast, throw scenarios at Jared and get his opinion, get his thoughts on stuff. Um, It is really helpful to think about, hey, the next house that I buy or any major purchase that you're considering, have a third party who's not going to have to live with the consequences of that decision. Think about the pros and cons with you. Justin, you you used a word in that last sentence that's gonna be our fifth point, which is understanding the consequences, right? And so this point's really important, right? Because when you make an investment decision. It is not just an investment decision. It has tax consequences. It has estate planning consequences. Is it going to be capital gains? Uh, what type of, is it a, is it a municipal fund? Is it not, right? There's so many considerations. So understanding the downstream consequences is really important, right? Because you can have, we help people maximize after-tax take-home returns, right? But if if, if you're running a tax inefficient portfolio, it could damage things significantly. So understanding the downstream consequences, Justin, what would you add there? Yes. Uh, you really need to understand where to locate different things. Um, and I think you also need to have the ability to 
uh, zoom out and ask the question, what is going to be the 20-year tax estate planning ramifications of this action? So we're trying to keep this podcast more DIY investing. We're not going to dive into, I mean, it would take us a whole lot of time to DIY tax planning in other areas, but there are downstream consequences to every investment decision you make. Jared, we've had meetings where we've we've met with folks and their, their thought with a specific tax strategy is, well, I mean, I don't know if I want to go through the hassle of doing that just to save a little bit on taxes. And, you know, there, most of the time when we hear that, my thought is I did not explain something well. This is on me. I made a mistake in my communication somewhere because we're not talking about small tax consequences. If you are 55 through 70, uh, almost every investment retirement planning decision you make carries enormous tax consequences. Uh, In in, in many cases, six, seven figures of of tax consequences. And that's, I mean, I I mentioned that for age 55 to age 70, but that's also pretty darn true at age 35 to 50 as your income approaches a, a really high income level. Uh, the, the tax consequences can be enormous. So you really need to understand the downstream consequences. I think the, the other thing with that is none of, there's nothing in financial planning that's rocket science, but there are about 60 or 70 moving parts. And so return on hassle, return on time. If you want to have a firm understanding of every part, you don't need to, you don't need to know all 75,000 pages of the IRS tax code. But if you do want to become an expert on all of the areas of the tax code that are relevant to you, that's probably attainable. It's just a question of, do you want to put in the time to do that? Absolutely. So while we wouldn't advocate going to the casino, there is a way to go to the casino responsibly. Um, No, but, you know, I think I think it's good for people to hear. We realize there's some group of people that's never going to hire an investment professional and that's okay, And we want them to succeed. And so hopefully these tips help you in that. Um, But if you hear this and you say, man, that sounds like a lot of work or I don't have the software to do that. Great. We know ourselves and tons of other advisory firms that are doing great work and helping families navigate this stuff because it's not in their wheelhouse and not worth their time. But people exist on a spectrum and we're trying to meet them at where they're at. So hopefully this helped you, especially if you're a DIY investor. Uh, Shoot us an email for future episodes. We love hearing from you. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.